Welcome to Tractor Time, a farming podcast from Acres USA. Uh, we are the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ryan Slaybaugh. Thank you for listening today and for joining us here at the Acres USA community. We're in our new home in Greeley, Colorado, today recording, and we're excited to be here. Uh, first off, we wanted to share a comment from our reader this morning. Sunny out in California thinks we should call this a sodcast, not a podcast. Uh, Sunny, I, we admit we, we groaned a little bit at this, but we, we definitely felt like it deserved a at some point as well. So uh, anyway, thanks for writing in. You, anybody else who wants to write in and entertain us, educate us, uh, let us know what you want to hear on the program, can email us at podcasts at acresusa.com. Again, that's podcasts at acresusa.com. Uh, this week, we are dipping into the archives, uh, again, back to 2005. Those seem to be pretty popular when we do it, so we're going to continue uh, digging back in. Um, in 2005, uh, for those who don't remember, uh, YouTube was founded that year. Um, in bad news, Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans. Um, but that year as well, uh, John Slack took the stage at our Eco-Ag conference and, and spoke about rocks. Um, we're not really talking about rocks, but we are talking about geology and even more so uh, geology, microbiology, let me say that again, geology, microbiology, or as Slack puts it, uh, when bugs eat rocks. The basis of all this, and why it's interesting to us and other eco-farmers, the industrial chemical revolution that occurred after World War II caused scientists or geologists or just rock fanatics to pause in their research in regards to how rocks relate to agriculture, Um, generally speaking. A few passionate folks like John continued they uh, avoided the, the noise created by all these uh, uh, pollution and shortcuts that are out there and um, learned how many living things manipulate rocks to get the nutrients they require and actually learned how to tell what they're doing in the soil. Uh, yet John Slack is not a geologist or a farmer. He calls himself a prospector. We went out and looked for calcium, he says in this talk. Uh, he speaks about what he looks for when he walks the fields and digs his hands into the soil what he sees when plants are reacting to those minerals and shares that information so it's a great thing to learn from today's program is how uh, how to go out to your fields and really see what the minerals are doing and how to know they're reacting to your uh, to your plants so we're happy and proud to share this talk from 2005 with you this week it's still as relevant and and under studies as ever Uh, so we hope somebody can get inspired by this and keep uh, plugging in the gaps that are out there so again you're listening to tractor time uh, these podcasts are on our blog site, ecofarmingdaily.com. Uh, you can find us through the Apple iTunes store as well by searching for Acres USA. Uh, today we're uh, listening to John Slack talk from 2005 about geology and farming. best place to start off is uh, to describe what these two slides are and what an agricultural mineral prospector is. Um, I don't classify myself as a scientist. I like to uh, classify myself as a prospector. And a prospector is very much like a farmer. Uh, They're observant. They're naturalists. uh, They love and they're passionate about what they do. I am a fourth-generation miner. Um, My great-grandfather immigrated to this country uh, 
uh, and was a shaft sinker and cobalt. And this was a major silver camp in northern Ontario. Uh, my grandfather worked in the McIntyre gold mine. Uh, my father followed him, and I followed my father. And uh, so we have three generations that worked at the McIntyre gold mine. And it was my great-great-grandmother that uh, developed the passion of agriculture in my father. And uh, in the cold sort of winter in Timmins, uh, they spent a lot of time at the local library. And in 1949, my father, as a teenager, uh, read a book that would change his life forever. And it was called Malabar Farm. And it was written by Louis Bromfield. And uh, this passion uh, stayed with my father. And I have funny stories of when he attended the Hillbury School of Mines and the dean in a, being very upset uh, would uh, come into the classroom and tell my father that there was a salesman waiting in the lobby to uh, give him some information on the latest uh, technologies in agriculture, whether it be a building or some sort of thresher or some sort of system. And um, um, so I was fortunate enough to uh, have been engulfed in my father's passion. And in the early 1980s, we purchased our far first farm, and we really didn't have any inconceived notion that we could do what Louis Bromfield did, which was produce productive soils in five years. Um, and in our travels since then, he has been much maligned for taking such a stance that you can actually do something like this. And um, it gives me great pleasure to be able to, from our perspective, to, 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 to be able to uh, substantiate and defend Louis Bromfield's claims. So in 1980, we, we purchased these farms and uh, not having any sort of real experience, uh, tended to go in an organic direction right off the start. And in, I guess, the mid-80s, that's when we became certified organic. And uh, then we started to think, well, you know, what do we use for fertilizer now? So we started to attend conferences and we started to try to understand, well, what is organic fertilizer? And lo and behold, what they are is a bunch of rocks. And to our amazement, we said, my God, we know more about these rocks than the people that are selling us the rocks. Maybe we have something here to offer. And we got very excited about this because we finally have come full circle. We were able to marry our two tremendous passions, the passion of rocks and the passion of farming. And in the early 90s, we commenced uh, um, an exploration. We went on a prospecting exploration exercise to look for unique rocks. And we uh, formed a company called Agricultural Mineral Prospectors Incorporated. And it's a very long name, and we call it AMP for short, which is kind of interesting because AMP means energy. And we think rocks have a tremendous quantity of what we would refer to as latent geochemical energy. So um, we commenced uh, also prospecting, or as my father likes to call it, prospecting the Internet and information technology 
at the same time. And what we came to in our conclusion is that singularly the most neglected and overlooked uh, mineral that is occurring within our soils that have extreme, extreme implications to the success of sustainable agriculture was calcium. Yeah, simple old calcium. And what was really interesting is we came from this from a very different perspective. Uh, there has been people talking about this from a biological perspective. Obviously, Elbrecht has spoken about it. Uh, we've listened to Gary Zimmer speak about it. But we've come through this looking at it from a geological perspective. And there are some really fascinating implications of how we've looked at ge uh, geology, particularly soil geology and the role of calcium from a mineralogical standpoint. The other thing that we recognized is that uh, geoscience had a major role at one time. Uh, Louis Bromfield's writings really had a geological influence. But with the advent of chemical agriculture 50 years ago, uh, the role of geoscience has been preempted. I know in Ontario that uh, the soil reports that I use were written predominantly in the 1940s and 50s, and they were written by geologists turned soil scientists. And that is the only piece of literature that I have that uh, evaluates or gives me information on these unique geological and soil districts within southern Ontario. Now, I'm going to put this in perspective for you. Uh, I recognize southern Ontario as one of the most unique geological footprints on Earth. And there's only one report. And many times I have to go to the library and get it photocopied. And this is, this is astounding coming from the mineral industry because I know the Sudbury Nickel Basin or the Timmins Gold Camp or the Cobalt Silver Camp I can write, I could probably fill this room with the volumes of literature that have been written on these deposits. They have been studied in infinite detail. And yet the economic wealth that has been produced off these extremely, extremely unique soils far exceeds anything that has ever been produced, uh, mineral wealth out of northern Ontario. So, I've already stated that what we believe is one of the most critical mineral deficiencies that we're seeing in our soils. To help reestablish geoscience's major role in soil science, we developed a not-for-profit company, and we call it Northern Organic Research and Development Corp. We like big names for some reason, I don't know, and we call this Nordic for short. And Nordic is funded by the Canadian government. Believe it or not, yeah, we actually got them to uh, fund a couple of crazy miners that were interested in supplying rocks to organic farmers. And uh, what we would like to do and what we are doing is utilizing mineral science facilities and geoscientists in the Sudbury area, which include the Ontario Geological Survey, their labs, and universities that are particularly interested in what we're talking about. And in the same uh, token, we've also selected a number of case history farms where we can start to establish long-term monitoring of using what we refer to as agriminerals, uh, which is just a fancy name for using uh, 
uh, ground-up rock uh, as a fertilizer, and looking at what we refer to as deep soil auditing procedures, uh, which we'll get into, and uh, improve agricultural man management practices through our little aspect. And I'm not saying that we have all the answers, but I know if we collectively listen to everyone that was at here and put them into this uh, web, the answers are all there. So anyways, we went out and we looked for calcium. One of the things that we really, really began to understand immediately is that agricultural people like to look at things quantitatively. And so they look at an analysis and they group substances together or rocks together based on their analysis. So whatever has the biggest analysis wins. And as far as I'm concerned, looking at this from a geological perspective as we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there are some, geology and mineralogy is as complex as life. And we'll get into that a little later too. It really is a, a fascinating and complex science. And there is no one rock on the face of this planet that are identical. We can go give them identical names, but they are not identical. And believe it or not, if you follow mineralogy, which I love to do because that's something prospectors like to do, is that we've got away from the notion of calling specific minerals specific names. We call them series now. Why? Because we are recognizing that the complexity of these minerals go from one spectrum to the next. And because they go from one spectrum to the next, they have unique properties. And so what we went out to look for is the most reactive rocks on Earth. And reactive is a term that we like to use. And I hope by the end of this uh, talk that uh, maybe you'll understand what reactive means from our perspective. So uh, the best example I can use with reactive, and I'll use reactive reactivity versus solubility. Um, agronomists recognize that uh, uh, what nutrients plants required, but they, and they, they required it in a soluble form, and it had to be in the form of an ion. So we've gone to great extents to try to make our rocks soluble. And uh, this has always been quite perplexing to me because looking at soils from a geological perspective, soils have gone through at least one biological process. Soils are in a higher state of oxidization because of water and atmospheric conditions. So soils are a sediment. Soils are our sediment, or what we would refer to as a sedimentary rock. It's part of the sedimentary series. And so they're in a high state of oxidization. So if I took a water-soluble ion and I put that in an oxidized environment, does it want to oxidize further? No, it wants to reduce. It wants to reduce into stable secondary soil minerals. And then the bug's got to turn around and oxidize it again so that it can go into a plant. Now, reactivity, our rocks, work in this opposite principle. Rocks are in a state of reduction. And what I'm interested in is finding rocks that are in the highest state of reduction. And that's why we went to look at these unusual, rare, magmatic. Magmatic means igneous or deep-seated molten rock uh, deposits. Because Rocks that are in a high state of reduction, when you put them into an oxidized environment, want to oxidize. They want to release. 
And that's why you can have a rock that has zero solubility, that supplies as much nutrients as a soluble nutrient. And in fact, if your soil system is highly impacted, the effectiveness of that soluble fertilizer is going to be less and less and less and less because your system becomes so aggressive and it sucks it and it holds it there in a, in a very stable secondary soil mineral. So getting back to my favorite subject or what we were prospecting for, we went to look for these alkalic rock formations. And these things, geologists are absolutely fascinated with these things. Not from its agricultural aspects, but because they're so unusual. They are extremely unusual rocks. If you uh, uh, categorized these and compared these to other igneous rocks, igneous rocks means rocks from fire. These are rocks that have come from magma. Uh, they only represent 0.1% of all igneous rocks on Earth. 0.1%. They're exceedingly rare. And then the unique deposits that I'm looking for were uh, these carbonatite complexes because these are calcium rich. And I'm looking for an Iraq, Iraq reactive calcium rich rock because I recognize that the singularly the most important deficient element within our soil systems is calcium. I want the most reactive form of calcium I can get. And so that's why we started to look at carbonatites. Fortuitously, these unique deposits are also very high in phosphorus, vermiculite, biotite, and we'll get into these things. But what characterizes these alkalic rocks and what makes them so reactive is their chemical and mineralogical complexity. One reason why geologists are so fascinated with these rocks is their mineralogical complexity and chemistry. And as we get on with the presentation, one of the key findings that we have come up with is that the most fertile footprints on Earth are those ones that are based on calcium and have abundance of mineral complexity. I was looking for, as I've already stated, bases, calcium, sodium, magnesium, potassium. Volatiles, very, very important. You want volatiles in your rocks. And these are water and CO2. Lithophile elements, as I mentioned before, rocks that are in a high state of reduction want to oxidize, and these unique alkalic rocks are full of lithophile elements, which mean a strong affinity for oxygen, having a greater free energy of oxidization. They want to break down in these soils very quickly. And we go on to state where these life essential characteristics, which we refer to as mineralogical, biological interactions, are found in extremely reactive alkalic rocks. The most naturally fertile regions on Earth exist. And there are numerous examples which we're going to get into. But I'm going to a bit of a sideline, but more or less on the same topic, is first of all, how do we evaluate what is a fertile footprint? How do we evaluate soil systems? First of all, what is sustainable agriculture? And sustainable agriculture, as far as we can see, and the best way to describe it is to describe how complex soils are. This diagram shows, here's what we refer to as the pedosphere. And the pedosphere is soil. And it is the only place on Earth where you have the atmosphere, which we understand. That's the oxygen we breathe. It's the nitrogen. It is ozone. 
The hydrosphere, that's water. The biosphere, that's all life on Earth. And the lithosphere, this is where we like to hang out, converge. This is where it all intermingles, right here in soil. The most complex system on Earth. And in soil, this is where life begins. And through the research that we've done and the evaluating it from this sort of perspective, which we call a systems approach to soil science, we have to look at all these systems and we have to look at how they interact within this soil system before we can understand. And we've done a very good job of understanding biological systems and food webs. We have a pretty good idea about atmospheric things and hydrosphere, but we still regard rocks as requiring geological time and rocks are inert. But in actual facts, rocks are the fuel for this entire system. So mechanistic, what we refer to as current agricultural science, results in reducing the system to the smallest components, believing that this will result in understanding the whole. And you'll probably hear this by any number of speakers here that are speaking of the same thing, is we cannot break down this system to the smallest component in, in the case of atoms or elements and look at uh, straight-on relationships and describe how the soil system is going to behave or whether this nutrient is going to get into this plant. We have to evaluate the system from the whole. So systems, we call it systems thinking, and this is where we're going, and I think Acres is, a, is, is uh, well on their way to getting that message across. And in many sort of, uh, I call it cutting-edge thinking ideas, systems thinking keeps coming up. And sustainable agricultural science is system thinking. And it recognizes that the components of a system cannot be understood without first understanding the whole. So if we understand the whole, then we can look at the chemistry, and the chemistry makes sense within understanding that whole. It doesn't work the other way around. And it's our conceit that sustainable agriculture will re require a return to a geoscience approach, and in particularly the application of geomicrobiology. And what does geomicrobiology mean? Geomicrobiology are a bunch of crazy geologists that are spending all their time looking at bugs eating rocks. That's what it boils down to. And how they manipulate rocks to their benefit. And they're some of my favorite people. I just can't get enough of it. But that's just what I like to do. I refer to uh, soil and I refer to anything that I see geologically on this face of this planet as a geology of life. Um, what's really interesting is that li living systems don't all, all, you know, not only do they adapt to their environment, they also manipulate it. And they manipulate rocks. They have the ability to manipulate rocks to maximize their potential and to make the cycling of nutrients easier so it's easier for the next time that they go back at these rocks to get the nutrients they require. What's really, really interesting about uh, how I see uh, how living systems affect rocks is that these aren't processes of accident. You know, Nothing's accidental in geology, particularly in soils. These soils are being developed within a system that has been manipulated by life that is to the benefit of life. And if we do not recognize that geology is being manipulated, 
and that it has a, a significant function and has to be brought back into the equation or the web of life or food webs, then we've missed a significant part of the entire circle. The ability of the biosphere to transfer minerals to its benefit is beautifully illustrated in soils, and I can't wait to get to those slides to show how this happens and looking at this again from a, from a geologist's or a prospector's point of view. All soils carry a geological footprint that establishes how it will organize, what the soil mineralogy is going to be, what the soil classification, biological intensity, and fertility. And the next series of slides are really trying to get some uh, case histories or some examples of geological footprints and how geology does affect biological systems and vice versa. And uh, these geological processes that are taking place in our soil are mediated by microorganisms. And they're occurring at the nanoscale. They're occurring within rhizospheres. They're occurring within clay colloids. Our first looking at geological footprints, my, like again, getting back to my favorite rocks, these are alkaline trends or alkaline trends. And these are unique trends where you find these rocks that I previously described, these complex, phosphorus-rich, uh, primary clay-rich, uh, rare earth-rich, complexity of elements. And the first one we're going to talk about is this one here, which we refer to as the Pacific Rim of Fire. And I don't know if you understand the Pacific Rim of Fire, but it uh, it's, uh, has to do with plate tectonics. And this plate, this, this crack or this boundary between the Pacific Ocean and the American continent goes up, goes around Alaska, goes across the ocean, hooks up with the uh, Lucians, and goes down through Japan and so on and so forth. And anyways, what we came to in a conclusion by looking at these natural systems and these natural soil environments is that mineralogical and complex regions combined with abundant calcium are the most fertile regions on earth. And the first place I'm going to talk about is Yukon Plateau and it's close to us because this is an area that uh, we worked in looking for gold and we were fascinated with uh, the flora and fauna but at that point in time, we really did not make the connection between the geology of life and uh, why we were seeing such an abundance of life. Um, I'm going to use this slide to describe it. We call it the, the porcupine caribou calving grounds. And if you ever were there to look at this uh, mass migration and where they calve, you'd think you were on the Serengeti Plains of Africa. There is a tremendous abundance of life. And the caribou milk is, uh, at least to my knowledge, is the richest mammal's milk on the face of the planet. And these caribou are going to a specific place to feed. And they're feeding off lichen. And what is lichen? Lichen is a complex community of cooperating microorganisms, which is cannabacteria, bacteria, and fungi. And to make it simple, it's a symbiotic relationship between a plant 
and a microorganism that extract new nutrients directly from rock. They're getting their, what you're looking here is lichen. And this lichen, there is no soil substrate here. This is, this is rock. And they're actually obtaining in real time, not geological time, nutrients that are going to sustain hundreds of thousands of caribou that are calving. That's, that's pretty, pretty incredible. And why are they going after it? It's because of these unique alkalic rocks. Everything that they require, the complexity of life, exists within those rocks. And there is a relationship between those rocks, that lichen, and the health of that caribou herd, unquestionably. The other example we use is the uh, woodland bison. Woodland bison munching on fireweed. And they mow it down, and this fireweed is so nutritious. And it usually uh, is found where uh, there's been placer mining going on, or we've dug a hole with our, our backhoe looking for gold or other minerals. The other example is that the uh, lakes in that particular area host the largest waterfowl on the face of the planet, the trumpeter swans. And it is quite a spectacular sight to see these magnificent birds uh, coming in. And what are they feeding on? We believe it's freshwater shrimp. And I'll tell you a story about freshwater shrimp. Uh, we did some diamond drilling. We were drilling. We used these drills to look at core uh, of rock. And we uh, drilled a hole in the ice in one of these lakes, and I have never seen such an abundance of freshwater shrimp come out of that hole in my entire life. I have never been on a lake in anywhere that have had that much life. And to the point where uh, the biggest problem we had was keeping our pumps from clogging with freshwater shrimp to run our drills. Now, you have to remember that this is an abundance of life that is exceptional. And we're talking about a desert. We're talking about areas where soil is permafrost. That means it's frozen all the time. And we are talking of areas that are extremely cold. Yet, we see this proliferation of life. This proliferation of life is due to rocks. And if we can go and start to look at this complexity that we're seeing, this interaction between rocks and life, then we can start to come up with what I would consider sustainable agricultural practices. That's just, we have to look at these systems. We have to look at it from the whole. We can't bring it down into its individual chemistry and think that we're going to make a difference. Okay, the next favorite place I like to talk about is the Ottawa Basin. And what's really interesting about down here is there are, there's all these alkalic rocks. Hmm, interesting. And the Ottawa Basin is actually formed on an ancient sea bottom. And these are limestone and dolomite and shales. Right here. Highly calcareous. I keep, you know, calcareous, calcium. That's, it's right there. Now what happened in the Ottawa Valley is we had glaciation. And all around that beautiful basin of sediments of limey, calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium rich, alkali rocks were these unique alkalic deposits, which are very similar to this Spanish River carbonatite that we're quarrying. 
And the glaciers came along and they gouged this and they intermixed it with these limey sediments and you ended up, voila, with a geological footprint that produces nutritious food that is sustainable. It is absolutely spectacular. These soils are alive. And this is just to give you now, let's get back to the geochemistry. Now the geochemistry makes sense to me. I can evaluate that geochemistry because I know what the system is. And for instance, uh, this is in 0.3 meters. What's that work out to feet? Um, I have no idea. Anyways, these are total amounts, tons per acre. In this particular soil that I just showed you, this geological footprint, we have, uh, my math is really bad, but that works out to about 26 tons of calcium per acre. 26 tons. Phosphorus, we're up around three tons. Go ahead. When you give us those numbers, how deep is that? That's point through, that's why I'm asking. What? Yeah, well, not quite one foot. You know, and then we start getting into subsoils, and I mean, it's astronomical what I call the geochemical potential of these rocks are within this soil profile. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, you've got just incredible, incredible complexity. What did those alkalic formations do when it inter those glaciers intermixed it with that limestone? The bulk of the soil profile is calcium or calcium-based. The uh, additions, whether it be moly, copper, zinc, nickel, copper, moly, boron, on and on, sulfur, phosphorus, the list goes on and on and on and on, are coming from these unique complex alkalic rocks. And you end up with exceptional soils that respond immediately. You know, and I'll show you that. Duluth complex. This is kind of interesting. This is in Minnesota. Um, and I would consider it, it's the largest... Yes? On that slide you just had there, uh, you said most of it's calcium, but uh, the aluminum number and the iron... Ah, very interesting, yes. When we start to look at uh, the chemistry of soils, we have to recognize that the two most abundant elements, I think, outside of carbon, oxygen, is aluminum and silica in your soil. And we're going to talk about what, why that's so important. Uh, and what the relationship is calcium ensuring that that aluminum and silica stays together. And it's clay. Um, the majority of minerals on Earth are silicates, or what we refer to as silicates. And they are uh, a combination of aluminum and silica and some other uh, particular element. But their role is indispensable. Uh, without uh, that amount of aluminum in that soil, that amount of silica, I don't have a silica number, life does not exist. Without clay on earth, life does not exist. That's how important it is. Next to photosynthesis, clay minerals and their uh, exchange reactions are the most important thing. Okay, the Duluth complex. There it is. It's the largest uh, alkalic trend uh, on earth. Well, I know it's the largest nickel resource on earth. And what's really interesting, and I should have taken the other slide, is it also represents what is referred to as the gravity high that runs through uh, Wisconsin, and it goes, I think, as far as uh, Kansas City. 
and it is an, a, a gravity anomaly because what happens is it outcrops here and then it gets covered with sediments, but the signature is, st is still seen. And what would really interest me is I do know that this has pronounced effects on soil development. I also know that it would have pronounced effects on the overlying sedimentary rocks, and those sedimentary rocks, you should see a reflection in the soil. So do we see uh, uh, any association? I would bet that you would. Uh, my last is Northern Ontario. Northern Ontario really excites me. As you can see, uh, the, the largest extents of these alkalic trends exist within Northern Ontario and Northern Quebec. And so these are really happy hunting grounds for the type of agrominerals that I think are essential to sustainable agriculture, not to mention some other wonderful things. Uh, agrominerals, mineral complexity, extremely fertile soils, and coupled with this large agricultural land base, an abundant peat, uh, which is an, uh, we can get into later, uh, makes northern Ontario an exceptional region for producing mineral-dense foods, sustainable agricultural practices, producing extremely, extremely nutritious foods. The speed of life. Um, I have a lot of problem with the way we evaluate the mineral components of our soil, which probably represents somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. Uh, by far, the largest component uh, of a mineral soil is minerals. And um, the, a lot of, and I guess it gets again back to the solubility issue, how we evaluate things, is uh, that we uh, believe that uh, to create soils takes thousands of years. Well. In natural soil development, it may take a 1,000 years because that's how long it took for life to invade that particular little uh, spot on Earth and a soil profile to develop. But um, under our management practices, and particularly Louis Bromfield showed us, is that if we do proper agricultural practices, we can create what took a 1,000 years. We can do it in five years. And uh, I, I believe this. I believe this because the speed of life is, is real. You know, current research is describing mineral transformation within the rhizosphere occurring within a growing season. And I'll have, I've got some examples coming that actually demonstrate and show that you can um, extract nutrients or plants can extract nutrients from insoluble rocks within the same year that they're put on. They, these microorganisms create enormous stores of chemical energy. And they have this ability to do this. And from any multitude of complex geochemical reactions. So it doesn't matter if your soil's acidic. Well, it does matter if it's acidic, but they get more aggressive when it's acidic. But it doesn't matter where your pH level is, what the complexion of that soil geology is. Uh, the microbial world can adjust to it. It adjusts and reacts to its environment. Just as rocks adjust and react to the microbial or the, its environment. And these reactions are occurring at inconceivable speed. Uh, they believe that the catalytic effect of biological systems accelerate geological processes by up to a million times. So we're not talking about geological time, we're talking about real time. Uh, my favorite example to demonstrate how quickly uh, uh, 
microorganisms change rocks is uh, biotite. And Jillian Banfield is, is a, a geomicrobiologist that lives here and uh, works in the United States. And she's one of these crazy geologists that are looking at bugs eating rocks. And she states the transformation of biotite. And biotite is a, what I refer to as a primary clay or a mica mineral to another uh, type of uh, clay mineral, vermiculite. And with the release of potassium is probably the most important biologically mediated geochemical reaction occurring in the rhizosphere. Basically what she has demonstrated and shown is that you can take this very, very unique crystal. And this is, again, getting back to qualitative versus quantitative. And uh, it may not have a huge number. The amount of pa potassium in a biotite crystal is about 12%. Uh, uh, and what's so interesting is, is its structure. It has this very unique structure. It's like the book's uh, the pages in a book, and they're stacked up on one on another, and these little potassium ions are stuck in between the pages of this book. And when you put it into a soil, to a microorganism, this is like a super freeway, they can access the inside and the interior of that crystal lattice extremely easy. And when they ran trials, and they used the potassium chloride fertilizer, and they ran, ran it against a biotite mica, what they found out is that the biotite mica supplied as much potassium to growing soybeans and wheat as the potassium chloride fertilizer. Well, how could that be? It's a rock. It's got zero solubility. It's, it is the power of microorganisms. And it's the power of how we have to develop agricultural practices that support healthy, diverse, complex microbial communities within our soils. And if we do not put the right geology in, or if the ge right geology does not exist within these soils, it doesn't work. Uh, soil calcium. This is the other example that I'm going to use on the, on the speed of life and how quick these reactions occur. Conventional wisdom suggests that excessive liming can accelerate decomposition of soil organic matter, result in microbial imbalances and loss of nutrient, soil nutrients. Again, I am going to reiterate, when you do case histories and you start to look in depth at soil systems across the face of this planet, there is one overriding phenomena, calcium, excessive quantities of calcium. Uh, and I'm, just to show you, this is, this is right, the Schomburg clay plain is an area that's close to me uh, and is recognized by agronomists as one of the most fertile regions in southern Ontario, unquestionably. You know, and it's stated in most agronomy textbooks. It's stated in the soil reports. And what I want to show you is calcium levels within this soil. And these, you know, we're looking at elemental calcium percent, 16, 11, 5, 4, 2%, almost 3%. These are excessive levels of these particular, of calcium. What's really, really interesting is when I went there, I was auditing uh, uh, properties for the city of Newmarket, and they wanted to go organic with their land management practices. And when I went to areas that had been, I'd say, impacted, where they've actually stripped the topsoil, 
uh, compacted the soil when they built their buildings and then decided to put soluble fertilizer on and try to grow some grass, these soils looked awful. They looked dead. They looked lifeless. And then it just so happened that I, part of the package was I, I had to audit um, an old age home. And one of the services uh, that was supplied by the old age home is they gave them compost for their little community garden. And the most astounding thing happened. As soon as they added the compost to these very impacted, and we're looking at subsoils here to get these levels of calcium, the soil became alive immediately. This was, it was a microbial. There, I mean, you couldn't put a shovel in that wasn't alive with, with worms and microbial. The soil was aggregated. And as you can see, they're using shovels to hold up this phenomenal growth of tomatoes. And so it's not blaming the calcium. It's the system wasn't, you know, adequately supplied with all the other things to make it work. Components of soil systems. I'm running out of time. And the one message that I wanted to get across is looking at the role of plants. The reason I use this diagram is, is, is looking at grassland communities, but in many, even our, our cultivated crops, is that it's, it's what is referred to as an inverted rainforest. And these root systems have the ability to access soil substrates well in excess of 10 feet. Now, they're not just going down there for water. They're going down there for a whole variety of, of things, including uh, nutrients within those water and what happens is they're going to start to uh, be able to access these huge, this huge, what I refer to as geochemical potential. And they bring it to build their uh, stems and leaves and flowers. And then they die and they end up increasing and creating organic matter. And what happens right here is that through this incredible microbial activity of digesting all these dead plants, we end up with what is referred to as a leach zone. And this leach zone is microorganisms that have actually extracted nutrients out of that area, or because of the acidifying effects of microbial activity that they've leached these minerals. But what's really interesting is we call it the enriched zone. And so what uh, living systems in this soil have done, have developed what is referred to as a soil system. And what is leached from here ends up here. And this is what we refer to as the zone of enrichment. And this zone of enrichment is clay. Uh, these, are, these are feet in this particular one. And your average soil profile really is no more than three and a half feet. But if, if it's not functioning correctly, you're not going to have the ability of these plants to get down here to, to deposit that wealth onto that soil top here. And in actual fact, because you potentially, particularly in the sand soil, where you have access or you have the potential to have roots that go into these tremendous depths, is that you could potentially have higher nutrient value here than the parent material because they're accumulating it and they're collecting it within this soil system. And the message I'm trying to get across is uh, agriculture is here. This is what we're looking at, and that's a serious mistake. 
Not that this isn't important. Not that we don't have to concern ourselves here. Yes, but if we do not look at this as well, then we've thrown out, I think, two-thirds of this soil profile. This is how soils work. This is what life has done to manipulate minerals on the surface of this planet so that it can cycle nutrients through this system. Microbial communities. Uh, I've, I've touched on it. I'm, I'm going to leave it there. I could talk for hours about some of the neat bugs that we see. One of my favorite bugs is called archaea. Uh, we call it the dark biosphere. These are microorganisms that actually extract their nutrients from minerals because sunlight and oxygen are toxic to them. And uh, they find them in extreme environments, like uh, when they drill down a thousand feet in rock, they find them. Or they find them on uh, the floor of the sea along sea vents. Or they find them in sulfuric lakes within a caldera of a volcano. And they find them in soil. Yeah, they are common in soil. And I, my suspicion is, is when we look at microbial communities, they're directly related to soil aggregation. And if you don't have proper soil aggregation, then you don't have soil, these, these unique little bugs because they require... I've described the soil profile. Soil mineralogy is clay mineralogy. Soil aggregation, getting back to these microorganisms within, within a soil aggregate, and this is what Gillian Banfield has been able to do, is that you could have a bulk pH of a soil, which is very benign, 7, and you can find microenvironments that have pHs of 3 and 4. And where are they finding them? They're finding them in well-aggregated soil, right in the center of that aggregate, that little ped. And so when us as farmers looking at soil tilth, looking at uh, soil quality, we want that soil to be aggregated. That's where they're finding them. One of the, and I'll speak to it, is vatos water. This is a real neat water. And you only find it within a soil profile. You don't find it in groundwater. You don't find it in our rivers. You don't find it in there. It is soil of, or water of soil. And vatos means it is a microbial mole and it's CO2 enriched. Now, getting back to these calcareous soil profiles or these calcium rich soil profiles I was showing you, wouldn't you think that if you had 5% calcium within a soil substrate down here that would be a, a, a very CO2-enriched vatose zone, which is essential, which is essential to, to living systems. Very, it's just, this is fascinating. Now, the other interesting thing is you don't have vatose water unless you have activity. You need life to, to create this. But you also need the minerals, so you can't forget the minerals. Anyways, we refer to it as deep, sustainable agriculture. And the myth persists that only the top 68 inches of soil is suited to plant life, and subsoil only play an indirect role in plant nutrition. When we look at things in a holistic fashion, we recognize that uh, it is a system, and life has manipulated geology to benefit itself. And a soil system is comprised not only of 68 inches, but of a leached horizon and of an enriched horizon. And it's also comprised of that parent material that formed it, that colors, that colors life. I show this slide because this 
is out of a, uh, a very interesting book written by this fellow, Weaver. And this book was published in 1926, by the way. And uh, I call him an agricultural mineral prospector because he was looking at root structures. And this one is a sugar beet. And what he showed was it's called... Uh, oh, I've got the book here. I'll, I'll yeah, right here. Yeah, Root Development of Field Crops. And it, it's free on the Internet, by the way. There's a site that you can go to to get it. But what he showed was, look at the root growth. Every time he hit a clay horizon, what happened? Lateral extent of roots. And we, so we have one about one and a half feet, and then we have another one sitting down around four feet. And what he stated, absorption of water and nutrients occur over the extent of root systems, but the majority of activity occurs in the younger and deeper roots. He also stated plants in later stages of development receive their nutrients and water from deeper soil layers, even when topsoils are abundantly supplied with similar nutrients. So if we affect our soil systems, if we develop hard pans, and we limit that plant's ability to access those deep soil substrates, our system isn't working. We have to look at the whole. I'm just going to keep going back to it. We have to look at the entire system. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, I don't know how much more time I have. A minute and a half. I'm gonna I'm gonna end it there. I I want to talk about. I could go on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, these the the interesting. The second favorite thing is clay minerals for me. It, it's a passion. But did you know that uh, clay minerals not only do they pick up cations, but they pick up nitrogen. They pick up phosphorus and they hold them there in a plant available form. And do you know that your soil substrates functioning? High-activity clays located within a soil substrate have more nitrogen than your topsoil. There's something here. We have to be thinking about these things. Yeah. Stop by the booth. Thanks, Greg. Thank you very much. I, I greatly appreciate your time. Thanks again for listening to Tractor Time by Acres USA. Uh, that's it for us this week. You can see all of our podcasts at ecofarmingdaily.com. You can shop for our books and subscribe to our magazine at acresusa.com. And you can email uh, us at podcasts at acresusa.com. Uh, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, in the meantime, we hope everyone has a great week ahead. Thanks. Thanks.